The following podcast is brought to you by Open G Records. I'm here with Harold Meltzer. I'm going to call you Hal to start just because you've asked for it and I'm going to give it to you. Yes, I'm going to try this out, this nickname. <laughs> so, <laughs> so let's try it here. I'm here with Hal Meltzer, uh, composer, uh, teacher, man about music in town in New York. I see him at a lot of events, um, supportive colleague. Uh, just want to welcome you here to the podcast, Hal. Good to see you. Nice to be here in your not living room studio. <laughs> I call it my man Office. cave. Man yeah, cave yeah, in yeah. the man cave. Oh, good. I like it. You're it's uh, you've got the the gist of how it goes. You're in the man cave. So um, we started talking, and I, and I and I put the the microphone on because uh, we have a, a connection in a, in a common friend uh, named Ed Jacobs, who is on a lot of my. Music and a lot of the uh, the projects that I do, who's a close friend, and you said that you had met him at Columbia, which I knew is where he did his doctorate, and you said that you were there doing a doctorate in... I was there to get my law degree. I went there straight from college. Like, from your undergraduate? Yes. And where did you do your undergraduate? Amherst College in Massachusetts, and I didn't know him in Amherst, but that was a point of connection because he was next. He had been next door at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Right. He's a, he's a few years older than I am, but at least we knew a lot of the same people mm -hmm. from there. Uh, so I, I came to Columbia in the fall of 88. And uh, I realized maybe that year that I really wanted to be a composer. For... Had you been composing prior to that as an undergraduate? Yes, uh, with the remarkable Lou Spratlin, uh, who who probably should have been in a major city his whole life, but was in Amherst. Hmm. And uh, certainly not career-minded, uh, looking for good for good performances of his music, but not opportunities that his music would reach a wider audience. He hoped that if the music was good enough, it eventually would. That is naive. This incredibly but in, naive. <laughs> in his case, it worked out. He wrote an opera in the 70s uh, that was commissioned by the New, Ave, New Haven Opera Company. And the New Haven Opera Company promptly folded after it commissioned him to write this <laughs> opera. And he decided to write the rest of the opera and around college put on scenes in reduced orchestrations and so on and worked, worked on it, I think, a lot of the time. It was done mostly or completely by the time I got to Amherst in 84. The opera. Yeah. And uh, it awaited a production for decades. And he... He blew a wad of money when he was 60 with some real assistance from Amherst College on um, putting on a concert version of Act Two of the three-act opera. And the concert version of Act Two won the Pulitzer Prize. And oh, wow. There was a lot of attention paid to him for a little bit, and, and uh, as the knives are always drawn when someone wins a Pulitzer Prize, um, <laughs> the, the knives were drawn, who's that? He doesn't deserve that. I've never heard of him. And um, his... Since he understood what the business is really like, instead of saying, uh, well, you know, finally the world has seen that I'm one of the great composers, which is, you know, what people do when they right. get uh, that thing if they feel not recognized, he simply said, well, maybe someone will produce the opera now. And? It took another ten years. Jesus Christ. Yeah, you'd think something, act two of the concert version of an opera wins the Pulitzer Prize, someone would put it on. But there was a cancellation at Santa Fe, and this got plugged in, and um, it was produced. I, th I think I think it was 2010 by Santa Fe, mm. and uh, uh, I went out there to see it, and it's a great show. It's a beautiful, beautiful work of art. I think mm. it's one of the great operas of the last hundred years. Wow! 
And, um, he and it w- couldn't get a performance. He waited 30-something 30, 30 years from the time he started it for the time it got <laughs> produced. And uh, But, you know, it got a lot of recognition in the end. Right. It won the Pulitzer Prize. Uh, this year, the American Academy of Arts and Letters uh, awarded the Charles Ives Opera Prize, which is a significant award to the best American opera in recent years, and he won that this year. Huh. And now he, he retired 10 years ago. He's in his mid-70s living in Amherst and um, still not incredibly well known but when his name comes up he's pretty widely respected so like a composer's composer he's a composer's composer and uh, what what you want in a composer that you've that is missing so much right now you know you make a reference to Il Trovatore or to some uh, motet of Schutz or some piano prelude of Debussy, he knows it all. He knows this repertory. Yeah. And at the same time, he's not defensive. So he's got this this voracious appetite to learn music and learn about other things. So if you mention a piece he doesn't know and you recommend it, he will be very honest about not knowing it, the way other people kind of posture. <laughs> oh, yes, yes, I've played that. Oh, uh, right. I, and, yeah, uh, I know the second, but not the third, maybe. Right. I heard it years ago, but I know so much. I can't retain everything. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't remember it. R- remind me. Yes. So he's very <laughs> open and honest, and and. Um, but he actually probably knows the rep. He knows it better than than anyone else. That's... Uh, and he's just uh, he's he loves music, and and he knows the repertory like nobody's business. And um, he was a great teacher. I didn't go to college thinking I'd be a composer. Right. Um, and I, I've been composing since I was eleven. Okay. So let's briefly go back so what were you did you play piano or something as a kid or what yeah first instrument was saxophone fourth grade or maybe third grade i th- I forget when at school we started learning i think yeah. it was fourth grade so I, was, I, was in... I wanted to play sax it was sixth grade for me but my mom had an old clarinet in the attic from high school so that's what i played that's that's what my um that's what my parents wanted for me clarinet but it seemed um you know the the shiny metal no, the I saxophone. No, I get it. I wanted the sax too, but thank, I, I thank my lucky fucking stars that I that I left into the clarinet instead of the saxophone because I get to play Brahms and shit. You know yes, I mean? right. Well, I, mean, I, I wasn't, I, wasn't yet a, wood, a, wood, a, Sorry. Yo, now go we're going to talk at cross purposes. I'm just out of all woodwind instruments, the clarinet just has the heftiest lit with Brahms and Mozart and uh, some Schumann and. All of that stuff. There's no no great flute or oboe or bassoon that's like that. So that that's true. Uh, I I converted from saxophone uh, in eighth grade to bassoon. I was nice. a bassoon player. My brother did the exact same thing. Well, that's the, awesome. It, I knew that you and I like. <laughs> well, there's no one who's you know who's five or six and and, <laughs> and someone gets hold of the kid and says. Here's a bassoon. Yeah, take this you know, big stick that's all curvy that I, you have to whittle some shit for. I can't imagine anyone starts on the bassoon, but we had too many. I'd converted to tenor sax in sixth grade, and then in eighth grade band, they had a few bassoons in the closet, yeah. in the instrument room, and and there were too many tenor sax. There was this guy, Bill Fippinger, who had, I think, a size 50 shoe, and, and he kept tapping every beat his foot tapped, and there was there at least was a sixteenth between his heel and his toe, <laughs> and he threw off the whole section. And I think I think he really was a size thirteen and a half shoe in seventh grade. And um, you still you still carry that anger for his damn laggy it was, toe tap. It was frustrating. The thwomp, 
the wump was, was the foot beating. And so the world wasn't big enough for that section, and so they, they said someone had to learn the bassoon. Yeah. And so uh, they approached me, and they gave me a bassoon, and they gave me a reed, yeah, yeah. and no one knew what to do with it. And so eventually... You know, two weeks later, I said, well, I guess I need lessons on this. Yeah, so I, can't, I, I can't figure out what I'm doing here. So I took bassoon lessons and, and became a bassoon player. And and I think I took up piano in, in fifth or sixth grade from the local, you know, she played in, she played organ in the for the church choir. Yeah, sure. uh, and uh, she was very nice, and I progressed not very far and didn't have very much interest. But then I, I went away to summer camp, as I did, and there was a jazz player named Ari. Ari Martin, I think. He probably never became a professional musician, but mm-hmm. he he played things like on Green Google Dolphin right Street. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look up. I'm pretty sure he didn't. He, he no, was I'm just, Googling it right now just to... Because if he did, then we got to give him props because you sure, know, that's let's, awesome. Sure, let's give him props. What's his name? Ari? Ari Martin? Let me just Google and Ari I, Martin trumpet. No, no piano. Ari piano. Martin piano. Yeah. Um, but he would play... Um, on Green Dolphin Street and other standards, and I was amazed. I thought, well, if I'm if I'm busy taking these lessons and I'm practicing anyway, I might as well be good. Right. Well, I don't I don't see a, a piano for no. Martin. So, oh well. And uh, so they used to have these really silly books, um, Chopin, his greatest hits, mm. sheet music, mm-hmm. and uh, so without really knowing much repertory, I got Chopin, his greatest hits, and Grieg, his greatest hits. Are they? Dumbed down, or were they? No, the, no, they, they were the real music, music. But you know, for Chopin, it was a few preludes, a sure. few mazurkas, yeah, yeah, waltzes, yeah. almost like a, a CD. In I'm pretty way. sure they didn't have the B minor sonata, <laughs> there, you know. But they had a polonaise and impromptu. Would and you so call on. that a greatest hit? Uh, the B minor sonata, I think, is one of the greatest pieces yeah, for, ever written for hit. piano. E, well, none of them is a hit. I mean, I you know, know, the I mean, A major prelude is a hit. You can you could play some of that for people who don't know classical music, and they may not be able to tell you what it is, but they'll go, "Oh, I know that." Yeah, you know, I, or they can sing or or whatever. So th- those to me are classical hits, or the ones that that like might have <laughs> might have made it onto uh, Hooked on Classics, which was my first tape that I ever had. In my right. Life. Hooked on, I remember Hooked on Classics. Oh, man, I, 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 I played the shit out of that tape. It's funny, you, so you, you start saxophone to bassoon. Did you become a serious bassoonist? I mean, did you, like, really... I mean, my brother also recognized cannily that there was much more chance to be in the top chairs of the regional band on the bassoon than there was on the saxophone. Clearly, yes. A lack of competition was my greatest friend. <laughs> uh, uh, I think I, I got to be pretty good when I was maybe 15 or 16, and I joined the Long Island Youth Orchestra, mm-hmm. which uh, put me in touch with a lot of fantastic musicians, well, sure. some of whom became musicians. Right. And... Um, also, Where were you growing up at this time? So Long Island, Hicksville, Long Island. Where's that precise? Like sort of in, is it's it twenty five miles east from here? So, so roughly middle Nassau County. So suburbia. Yes. Yeah. Definitely suburbia. Um, but the Long Island Youth Orchestra drew from all over. Mm-hmm. I came from a lower middle class blue collar town. Um, I don't really think that my family was a lower middle class blue collar background I came from a middle class white collar background and mm-hmm. it was a little odd to be in that town everyone seemed to work for Grumman aircraft mm-hmm. and um, it was a it was a very republican town and I had liberal parents mm. especially a liberal father and uh, there was I, I didn't really fit in and so the Long Island Youth Orchestra was a bomb because I met people who were much more like me yeah and 
Um, the other great thing about it was the... A con- bomb! Yes. No, never mind. No, no, I know the Seinfeld reference. <laughs> the conductor was, um, was a travel agent, uh, as well as a conductor, and used to be a first-rate clarinetist. He was a professional clarinetist, and his mom said, Martin... You, you're not a clarinetist. It's no life for you. Do something safe. And he became a travel agent, specializing in groups. And so he used... Mom was smart. Mom was smart. And he used his abilities as a travel agent to send the youth orchestra on these magnificent tours. So in the summer between junior and senior years in high school, I went to China and Japan in 1983. We were, I think we were the... They were there first, and then the Boston Symphony, and then we were back. And so I was the th- part of the third orchestra and in China That's in 1983 in Japan. Crazy. And in 84, the summer between high school and college, we went to France, then Pakistan, Nepal, India, Egypt, and Israel. Oh. And, uh, That's was, amazing. Yeah. And, Whoa. And, With good, good high school players and doing all of that. Yeah, we did real repertory. That's amazing. We traveled with, you know, pictures at an exhibition mm-hmm. and um, Roman Carnival Overture. And uh, for lighter concerts, we did an American in Paris and Leonore Number 3. But the youth orchestra did real repertory during the year. Mahler 1. Mm, Magister Mahler. Wow. Um, what else did we do? I don't remember what That's we did. Crazy. But we... And and when we were deciding, we read through amazing things like Prokofiev Five and Firebird, and it was uh... <laughs> reading through Firebird would make me itch now. So yeah. that's really that's insanity. It was it was wonderful, and I I connected playing my instrument to great repertory r- right away, mm-hmm. and that was special. And I connected both to the idea that that <laughs> through classical music you could be hooked into travel and adventure, right. That, oh yeah, interesting. And plus, the bassoon literature in in or the bassoon rep in orchestral literature is is vastly different than you would have been playing in band in high school. I mean, it's just actual. I played in high school band. Yeah, sure, that me was too. But... Dreadful. You prayed for the Superman, <laughs> uh, the Superman John Williams music, so you could do the Lex Luthor uh, <laughs> solo. Yeah. You know, so suddenly you're like you actually are a valuable, colorful instrument in in a section, as well. I'm starting to get an idea that um, the bassoon may be a gateway drug to more nerdiness because you went in the direction of composer, which I consider a fairly egghead side. All of you guys are smart to to me, uh, the good ones. And then my brother became a musicologist, which is also, you know, as eggheady as you could possibly get. So I think there's something about the bassoon that leads you into something off the beaten path. Maybe it's the curves, maybe it's the reed, but it's a gateway drug to something. Yeah, certainly the nerdiness, although I was never holed up with making reeds. I, I did it, but I didn't like doing yeah, it. Yeah, I get that. Uh, I, I would prefer to buy them. I wanted to play. And I continued pretty seriously uh, through college. Had a really good <coughs> teacher at the beginning of college before he moved on. Frank Morelli mm. oh, was yeah. the uh, teacher at UMass Amherst, and I would trek over to UMass Amherst for lessons. Nice. And he's such a great player. Yeah, for sure. Uh, been kind of thrilling. Where is he now? Well, he teaches at Yale and mm-hmm. Manhattan. and um, Does he play... Plays a bunch of places, like a New York Woodwind Quintet or something. No, he plays in Windscape. Um, I have a strange connection to uh, New York Woodwind Quintet because here's a clarinet reference. So my wife's grandmother 
remarried in the 50s mm -hmm. to David Glazer. No way. I yes, we, I think way. we talked about yeah. this, right? And um, <laughs> he was still playing. It was yeah. many years past New York Wooden Quintet. Charlie Nydick had taken over. Mm -hmm. But David Glazer was still uh, alive and playing a little bit and married to Hillary's, my wife's grandmother. Mm -hmm. And I met him shortly after I met her. And uh, we, we we played a little bit together. I read through the Brahms sonatas with him. Nice. He was in his 80s. Sure. And we did some uh, charity benefit performance. Hillary still was still playing cello a little bit at the time. And she and David Glazer and I read through the Brook fantasy pieces oh, at, nice. uh, for this benefit, which was fun. I would rather have done the Brahms. Sure. But, but it that's was, a, it was heavy lifting. nice to, to play with him. Uh, Brahms is a lot to ask of an 80-year-old guy. I know, <laughs> I know. Really is... For some reason, just it just has so much heft and bulk in it that it's actually like it's difficult, in, even in your prime, to really oh, tackle I know. problems. So, so he was in the New York, obviously in the New York Wooden Quintet for decades. Sure. Uh, but Frank played in Windscape, but he played. Frank um, is the main bassoon person for Orpheus, and um, worked with Frank uh, just now because I wrote a piece for Orpheus that they premiered in March. Nice. Um, and I worked with him years ago because I wrote a concerto maybe 10 years ago, well, more than 10 years ago, for Peter Kolke, who's a oh, fantastic yeah. bassoon oh, player who had yeah. been a Frank Morelli student. And it was it was a concerto for two bassoons and strings, and it was co-commissioned by um, a few orchestras, one of which was the Westchester Philharmonic, where Frank was principal. And the idea was that Peter would play it with the principal right. of, each, um, of each ensemble that had co-commissioned it. And so uh, Frank was there. And he did a couple performances with Peter, and it was it was strange. I hadn't seen him in years, and here I was, his former bassoon student, and I'd written this concerto that he would participated in. So that's awesome. It was. It's very cool how that circled this way. I love around. those circles when when they come back. Yeah, I you know I'm, I I figured out like maybe fairly recently for myself that I'm in this business for the hang almost i my i developed as a musician with my best friend who plays principal clarinet in the st louis symphony now and we just learned by hanging out as teenagers and so now as an adult i'm still attracted to the friendship aspect of making art together and of like you know of a composer Particularly that relationship between composer and musician where, you know, really you lay out an idea that isn't anything but an idea until someone sets their hands upon it. But we, we being interpretive artists, need to have something to set our hands upon because we're not improvisers. So that between the symbiotic relationship of the composer and the musician and, and, and actual friendship is really bliss for me and that's why I do it and it sounds to me like that's a similar moment for you to have all of that your your influences your loves your composing your bassoon sort of all come back in a moment like that it must have been enormously satisfying yeah and it's to me it's very important to be uh it it, it was important to me to have been a performer even if I wasn't maybe the greatest performer sure um to, to have had that experience when I'm writing. Uh, I think I think it informs what I do uh, to a great extent. I, I'm really I, glad that I turned this on. You know, again, I'm going to bring up my brother. What is it with you guys? 
he got a double master's in bassoon performance and musicology from Florida State for the exact same reason, because he knew that he was going to go into musicology, but he didn't want to lose touch with what the what he was going to be writing about, which is actually the the music of reality of of, of living music. What's his area? What does he do research on? Well, uh, he was a specialist in Ernst von Dohnini for a while because he went to Florida State and FSU is where Dohnini landed when he got to the United States. And there's a huge like. There was some choral symphony that Jay found in a trunk that had been premiered in like Prague in like 1939 that no one had ever seen, and that became his doctorate thesis of like preparing it for re premiere. And, uh-huh. But he actually won Jay won the National Jewish Book Award two years ago for a book he wrote about. I don't want to talk too much about myself. I want to hear more about you, but about these uh, uh, a collection of violins that a maker in. Tel Aviv named Amnon Weinstein has that um, made it through the Holocaust and these these instruments have different provenances of hey I played this in the ghetto or my dad you know hid this in the room or um, so it's like seven different stories of different violins that and, and their provenance sort of through this the so violins. real versions of the red violin yeah kind of real story. absolute I mean some really fascinating stories of survival and like just balls and and intellect and just getting by on your wits that are really insanely i i just can't believe that's real it's Mm -hmm. real history it just blows my mind it is like a story so sorry i just that just blows my mind that you (coughs) that 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 you connect the playing so much to your to your composition in the same way that my brother tried to try to maintain it you know while going into the the history side of it it's fascinating to me so how do you think that translates into the way that you write? Well, on some level, there's a complete disconnect because when I I, I, I realize one of the difficulties in, in, in playing my music often is that uh, in chamber music, everyone has a part that is usually very easily playable. Well, okay, no, that's pretty hard too. <laughs> but um, but Should be doable by a person. Yeah, there there are moments when even though things are coordinated to some extent, everyone will do better if they don't listen. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm finding this now. I have a violin piano piece called Chrysleriana. Right, and, you wrote uh, for Blair McMillan and, and Miranda Cookson. Miranda Cookson, yes. And uh, some some different people are are learning it, and cool. they're trying to coordinate it. And I I just wish it would it would be easier for them. I would say here, listen to each other. Here, don't listen to yeah. each other. Here, you know, and. Um, um, that that is not something that that is supposed to come to you if you're a performer, because you want as a as a performer you want to create circumstances where if you listen to each other, good things will happen. Right. So there's there's where I fall down on the job. Somehow, what I hear in my head happening is at moments where people are listening to each other, and then moments where they're not, and I haven't figured out how to write. Don't, Don't listen, listen here. Listen. You ever think about just writing it that literally? Don't listen to each other. I've said it. Um, I'm embarrassed to write it. Down. Why? Um, well, here I am, memorializing it. Well, you know what? Well, we can edit the fuck out of this. So, <laughs> you know? And and uh, you know, since it's my deal, like you know, obviously I swear, and it doesn't matter. I don't edit that stuff out. But um, you, you know, I as a performer, I don't mind it being that naked. Whatever is the whatever. See, I think that you know, 
I'm going to talk too much again. I got, I, I got to figure out how to make this quick. The, the best performers think like composers. What is the guy trying to get at here? I'm a guy, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a fundamentalist. Everything that I need to know is on this page, right? If I apply myself and my education and my instincts and, and think about it in an intellectual way, then the answers will present themselves to me because they are here. So if you wrote, don't listen, then I'm like, fucking great. I'm not listening. That's easy. Right. Well, I think, you know, I imagine this moment where, say, in this violin piano piece, the two instruments come together at this point mm. where they really are locked in. Mm -hmm. And each one is doing a, a somewhat separate kind of music. And there's a gesture and the gesture echoes and it echoes and writing it out it will, will not... Um, will not yield something where the accented note is on the beat. So I put in the accents. and But I don't want them necessarily to play off each other. I want them to have their own echoes until they reach that point where uh -huh. they're together again. And so when, people, more complex than when just... people are trying to line up, uh, you know, so the, the pianist, Elisa Leiser, in, in the up, this upcoming performance calls me in, or emails me and says... Um, I'm listening to what Liz, the violinist, is doing here, and says so like, I don't care whether it lines up, and what you know, I care whether it lines up there, there and yeah. here, but not in between. I want you to to shape your part until you collide again, and you you can't really tell people not to line up. It's hard. It's um, you know, I don't, I, 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 it's not that I want them not to line up. I don't want them to think about it. Right. I just want them to be free. Swing a bit, there in focus, out of focus, right. in focus. Right. Interesting. Um, it's cool. That sounds... I could write. Concentrate on the profile of your part. Um, listen to everyone else closely at bar ninety. You know, I could say that, but there are all kinds of musicians yeah. who are conscientious in good ways and sometimes not so good ways, and they're not going to do that. Mm -hmm. The first time I, I feel like I had this experience was I wrote a, a very long and... Tight somewhat, asses. Yeah. Everybody yeah. needs to loosen the fuck up. <laughs> I wrote a very long and complicated piece uh, 12 years ago or so called Sindbad, which is uh, for narrator and piano trio. This and, is about the comedian, right? Uh, <laughs> I wish. The, um, it's, a, it's a brilliant short story by Donald Barthelme. Um, and I took... It's maybe seven pages, and I took five or so of them... And I made them uh, the text for uh, narrator and, and piano trio. And unlike something that is stilted in one way, like Enoch Arden of Strauss, which is a piece of crap. It's a huge, long know. piece of crap. I, I, I do think it's okay to talk talk shit about composers who've been dead for more than 50 years. <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm not a big Strauss guy myself. I... I... I like Till Eulenspiegel because it's got a wicked E flat clarinet part, and then other things I could stand about five minutes of it at a time. Of it. Uh, yeah, five minutes is right, but there, there's some moments of really brilliant orchestration. Oh, Don Quixote, uh, yeah. unbelievable. Uh, I just know the sweet bass clarinet part, so I'm just like I'm all over it. And then you have the burlesque. I don't know. It. Wait, is that the name of it? Isn't there? A, there's a piece for clarinet, a clarinet bassoon, and orchestra. It's called. I think it's called burlesque. Strauss. Oh yeah. Um, that was like a concertante or something like that. Uh, yeah, yeah. I just am not. I, my my friend recorded a Strauss sonata for a project for us, and I just I let him do it because it, I, my job is to let I think singular 
ideas are best. I'm not going to fuck with your idea. If you want to play Strauss, go for it, but yeah, I fucking can't stand it. Four last songs are pretty good. Oh, oh yeah, okay. I'll give that 100%. Yeah. That's, yeah. So Strauss, Strauss is tough because the aesthetic doesn't appeal to me, but, um, and, uh, and he has a, um, he has a subtle hand, but it's not a delicate one. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I'm totally using that. That's a, <laughs> sure. It's such a, it's a fine line, but it's a definite line. That's interesting. I like it. Uh, so he's, he's not really my, my thing mm-hmm. either. Um, Wait, I've lost myself completely. Yeah, How did okay. we get to Strauss? Um, I don't remember. Meh. It's all right. Yeah. Well, we could go back to Ed Jacobs. Yeah, so so we started <laughs> We started it. So let's actually circle back um, since we sort of... I, I love taking these. So you, you, you went to Amherst. I went to Amherst. Now you're at... I composed a few pieces. Sure. Um, they were clearly about ideas. You know, you go to a liberal arts college... You meet an interesting composer like Lou Spratlin. He's generally under the impression that he's not going in the business of making composers. He's, he's in the interested in turning on mm-hmm. students, particularly those he finds interesting, yeah. to become more interested in music. Yep. And so lessons were about ideas. You know, what yeah, what is any, a piece of you art? You guys could go any number of ways in yeah. your career. From it's there. as it's as much it's as different from being an undergraduate at Eastman mm-hmm. as you could possibly imagine. Where right. the so much of the lessons are about how to turn this motive into that one, the right. many ways you could do that, what's the best range for the oboe, mm-hmm. what is you know, none of that came up. It would be an incidental thing. Well, you don't really want to write for that instrument that high because it's too hard. Mm-hmm. Or it doesn't sound loud. Look it up. Or, yeah, look it up. Yeah. You know, you need to. But it was about um you know, what is the essence of what you're doing? How to best realize it? What is what is a musical idea? What's what's interesting to listen to? And um, and he became really close with a number of people who got excited by what he had to offer, and he had a lot to offer. Um, and so I I graduate, and but he because he was not a career guy, you know, it was not about oh yes. You make your score look like that, and you could get a BMI or ASCAP award. Right. It, was, it, was, it was, I didn't, I didn't know anything about that. But sure. I, I wrote a sextet. It was my first big piece. I wrote sophomore year in college for clarinet, bassoon, and string quartet. Good instruments. Yeah. Um, and I, I played the bassoon part, and Luke conducted. He was actually a very, very fine conductor. Um, and um, it got performed, and, and Lou said something like, well... This is much better than a lot of stuff that gets premiered in New York. Mm. And I was 19 or something, and I, I didn't know what that meant really. Yeah. Um, but thought, well, that's good. That must be good. Sure. And so, so, but I, you know, he didn't say anything about, you could be a composer. Right. You know? Um, it was just a statement of its own quality. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know what being a composer involved. I thought it involved being like Lou. You know, you would get a job teaching at a liberal arts college, mm-hmm. and you would write pieces, and ensembles would do them, and you'd go back and teach Beethoven. And there's an theory. element of truth to that trajectory. Well, there there was, <laughs> and you know, some people are are really career minded, and some people are really not, and he's really not. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I I didn't give much thought to being a composer, and I I kind of figured it out on my own, um, months away from starting law school. I applied so to law school in my senior law year. Right. I, I, and, and he said to me my senior year, he said, well, I'm on sabbatical next year. We have a visiting professor. His name is Roger Reynolds. Um, 
and uh, you might enjoy working with him. He's very smart. Yeah. And you could stay on and be the ear training. There was a, um, there there are no graduate students at a liberal arts college like Amherst, but there were occasional TAs, mm-hmm. and they had a TA for ear training, which would be you conduct all the ear training sections, you make approximately six dollars and get right. housing. And um, but if you stayed here, uh, we would work it out so that you could work closely with Roger Reynolds. And I I thought that sounded appealing. I didn't much like Roger Reynolds' music, kind mm-hmm. of like now. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't that's know that's as close to talking shit as I'm going to get. It doesn't I'm much appeal to me. And, um, that much, that's very, very self-muted. Well, I, I barely know him, so I, don't, I have no grudges. Sure. He's just someone who's, whose music is just far from what interests me. And, uh, and it, that seemed like a good idea at the time, and I approached my parents, and they said, you're going to law school in the fall, or we are withdrawing any funds for you to go to law school. Oh. This is your chance. Now or never. Yeah. And so I said, well, I guess I'm going to law school. And, um, and I, didn't, I didn't think much about which law school I should go to. I knew that Columbia was one of the best, uh, if not the best. And I, I took the LSATs and I left with the ceiling that I'd bombed the LSATs. I, I don't know why. I certainly put no time into studying mm-hmm. for them. And um, I saw that Columbia, of the schools I was thinking of applying to, was the only one that had an early admissions program, unlike colleges, which you know you can apply to any college as long as you pick only one right. to apply early decision. Uh, although I think that's expanded now; it's all very weird. Yeah, I don't, um, I'm glad I'm not going to college or yeah. trying to get a job at this point in right. life. Much better. Forget about it. Uh, so I applied early to Columbia law school and found I was I think I, I, I gotten I got a letter that I'd gotten in maybe ten days after I'd applied. It was November fifteenth was the deadline. I sent it off on November fifteenth, I think it was maybe November twenty fifth or maybe the twenty sixth that I'd been accepted. So I thought, Oh well Maybe I didn't bomb that LSAT. I guess I didn't bomb the LSAT. <laughs> maybe I should go in and take a look what Columbia looks like and my heart sank because it was one of the ugliest buildings I'd ever seen. It looked, it looked old and faceless and uh, didn't know what to make of it. So I thought, okay, well, I'm going to school in New York. New York is good. Uh, and I'm <coughs> interested in, in becoming a composer. And But I didn't feel like I could not go to law school. So once I was there, I tried to figure out how do I make a musical life for myself in New York? And um, it it wasn't that difficult because I, I didn't have a clue how to be an adult with an adult social life. I had a girlfriend, but she was two years younger than I, and she was going off junior year abroad to Germany. And so I had no personal life, especially my first year in law school. I lived in a tiny dorm room. Mm-hmm. I had almost no friends, two or three, um, uh, outside the law school and had minimal contact with other law students. And so I was either studying for classes in law school or composing and I needed to find a teacher I thought I thought well I'm at Columbia I should go show my music to Mario Davidovsky who at the time taught at Columbia and um, I knocked on his door and I I, I didn't know how you did things apparently you don't just knock on someone's door I went to a liberal arts college where the point was to knock on people's doors and so I had the three pieces the three big pieces I'd written in college uh, and he answered and this odd man with a strange accent and a looming presence answered and I said Professor Davidovsky my name is Harold Meltzer I was hoping that I could show music to you sometime do you think you would consider um, uh making an appointment to see me or if you have a few minutes now I'm looking for a teacher and he said uh, 
I said, what do you mean? I said, well, I'm coming to Colombia in the fall. He said, I don't remember admitting anyone named Meltzer. <laughs> I said, well, no, I'm, I'm, I'm beginning law school. He says, oh, it's across the campus, <laughs> down there. And, uh, <laughs> and I, I, I realized that, but, but I, I also write music. He says, uh, and he says, uh, I don't understand. He says, you're a composer or you're a lawyer? And uh, I said, well, at the moment I'm doing both, but I want to be a composer. He says, then you should have the guts to quit. And uh, holy shit, really? That was a bit at the time. That was a bit much for me. I I, I didn't like that statement. I said, "Well," he says, he says, "I don't deal with dabblers, you know." And I said, "Well," I, I had this big black art portfolio <laughs> that, that I walked around with that I had you know, big big music sheet paper on, and I said, "Could I show you this just for a minute?" And um, he takes the the pages out. He looks at. It, he says. Oh, you're a real composer. You should go to graduate school. And I said, I know, but for the moment, I'm not. I'm going to the law school, but I'm going to spend a lot of time writing. He says, well, I have too many students. I can't. And he wrote down the names and numbers of three people. He says, call them. They take private students, maybe. And it was a weird threesome. Two made sense to me. Well, they all didn't make sense to me at the time. They were just names out right. of a hat. Uh, in, in retrospect, one name makes no sense to me. So he gave me the, the names and numbers of Babbitt, Warrenen, and Lucas Foss. How Lucas Foss ended up on that list, I have no clue. Huh. So I dutifully called Babbitt, no, rang off the hook, no response. I called Warrenen, 212-666-6068. I have a weird thing for phone numbers. I remember them for decades. That's weird. Uh, his home number, and he answered. Nobody and... call that. I'm going to edit that. I'm going to edit that out. <laughs> it's just like 8675309. Yeah. And he said, uh, Warrenen said, uh, I don't take private students. How did you get this number? Don't call me at home. <laughs> and he hung wow. up, which was funny because later I studied with him uh, privately, and uh, and and Foss 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 didn't even understand what I was calling about. He was so vague, and so I didn't have a teacher. And it was it was a few months before law school started. I still hadn't quite graduated, and Lou, as I said, was such a non careerist. He didn't know really who was in New York. He said, "Well, I went to high school with Ellen Zwilich. You could, you could. I don't think she teaches, but maybe she would know." Yeah. And that led nowhere. So I listened to a whole bunch of old CRI records. And I came up with this early disc of Tobias Picker, where he was halfway between the Tobias Picker you you might know now. Might, I can't say that I do. It's um, a kind of uh, halfway between a kind of neo-romantic uh, composer, opera composer now, mm. mostly, and uh, uh, and Charles Warren, because he was a Warren and student. So there were elements of post twelve tone rigor or mm. actual twelve tone rigor. And uh, and a neo romanticism kind of straining to get out in a in a way it's a different aesthetic but do you know the sixties Del Tredici where he's kind of he's trained as a twelve tone composer but he's writing writing these songs like Syzygy and Night Controverse that are that are really straining against the um, the grain and that I thought was well, interesting. That's what I love about Berg is when Berg pushes the tonality and and if for a moment you're like whoa and then you're back into this other kind of. Right, almost alien world to me. Right, I and and so that appealed to me, and I ended up studying with Tobias. Um, but I also wanted to. 
be in the music. I didn't want to have merely a teacher and have my, you know, my secret private lesson, which, mm -hmm. which I did. I would go off during law school once a week and I would have this secret, you know, lesson, which felt like, you know, arcane and uh, I was part of some secret society of composers. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know. You're an alchemist. I didn't know almost any musicians in New York because I was a law student at Columbia and then I would go off to my little lesson and, and, and you know, it's like I had a secret signet ring or something and a handshake. Um, and I desperately wanted to be part of some kind of musical community. So I would schlep over to Dodge Hall, the music building at Columbia, and I was desperate just to hang out with these people instead of the law students. And so I enrolled in a master seminar, um, or I think I couldn't, I wasn't allowed to take it for credit, but I audited the master seminar, which Marty Boykin, who was visiting from Brandeis mm -hmm. taught. And he said, well, you're auditing, so I can't really look at your music unless we've exhausted the music of the people who are, honest to God, graduate students here. And so I, I was in a seminar of five people and um, we looked at my music last, but I was somehow much more productive than anyone else in the seminar, which is unusual because I'm a very slow composer. Hmm. But my first year, I was taking these lessons with Tobias Picker and then going to this master seminar, and I, I wrote an orchestra piece in my first year of law school that I hope no one will ever find. <laughs> I wrote a piano piece, a large piano piece. I wrote a violin piano piece. I, I started a string quartet. I was a busy, busy guy because um, it was either composing or law student no no real private life um and i would sit and study my cases i would read my law books in the music uh lounge the graduate student lounge yes. at columbia and so there i met ed jacobs and his best friend at the time who was a composer and choral singer who ended up making his living i think in the metropolitan opera chorus named kurt finney hmm. i don't know whether ed has ever mentioned him like Not that I'm aware of. He also, I think, had gone to UMass Amherst. I could be wrong. Or maybe he maybe he was a Peabody undergrad, but they were very good friends at the time. And other people, David Glazer, another uh, different David Glazer, oh. G-L-A-S-E-R. No, composer. I know David's close to me, actually. No. I, I um, He wrote a concerto for me while I was still in North Carolina. Uh-huh. It's a very interesting guy, David. Yes, I, find I like him, him very much. Because he's not a musician at all. It's like his music is almost entirely intellectual because he doesn't have any of this. Right. Right? So it's like this weird quasi renaissance hockety shit going by that's just like... It's so intellectual, I find it musical. Yeah. In a weird way. But not in an obviously visceral sense. Yeah. Right. So he was there, and I just wanted any kind of contact. And I, I can't imagine what they thought of me at the time. I was 22. Um, I was always walking around with this bag full of law books and score paper. <laughs> desperate for any kind of contact. So... Uh, I would be waiting for my seminar, which met, I guess, once a week. But even other days, I would just sit in the lounge. And Davidovsky would come by, and my presence with my law books would piss him off. <laughs> and um, consciously or not, he would bait me. And he would say, oh, Meltzer, he's studying your law books. Yes, I thought you wanted to be a composer. And I was like, well, I do. He says... You know, I was in Argentina in law school, but I had the guts to quit. 
And I'd heard the story that, that he was composing. He was in law school, and Copeland had made a tour of South right. America and discovered him and said, come work with me at Tanglewood. Right. And, uh, and, and I don't know whether I was hoping for that, but it, 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 it hurt yeah. me terribly when yeah, he like would If Aaron Copeland came and dubbed me, then fuck yeah, I'd stop. Well, that's what I apparently said. Because uh, around the seventh or eighth time that he baited me in the in seven o three Dodge Hall, he said that, and I said, "You know, Mister Davidovsky, if Aaron Copeland walks into seven o three Dodge and says, come work with me at Tanglewood, I'll quit.'" <laughs> yeah, I mean exactly. And, and he gave me the "Oh, we understand each other, asshole." Yeah. Look, yeah. you know, and um, there's a respect that you find when you when you when you got another guy who'll be an asshole back to you and not like. Not really take offense at it. Be like, there's a respect there. Who but, knows? He was he was kind of he was um, unpleasant to me for years afterward, <laughs> and and it, it only deepened because I actually I I wanted to get out of law school, and so after in the middle of my first year, I applied to graduate school, um, in kind of tentative steps. I went. I saw that there was a one year master's program, at in England at Cambridge University. Alexander Gurr was the professor, and I thought. I'll try that, see how it goes. So I took a leave of absence from law school. I got into Cambridge, and I went to England for a year. And a number of Davidovsky students from, I think, Chen Yin Jolong to um, David Froome, mm-hmm. uh, who had been at Columbia, they all uh, schlepped off to Cambridge and worked with Alexander Gurr, who's a pretty interesting teacher in person. Okay. Um, and so I did this, and Davidovsky was seemingly impressed. But I wasn't quite ready for it. I didn't know... I knew a lot of repertory, but I wasn't... My chops weren't quite where uh, other people who worked with him were, like, say, right around the same time, Tom Addison, Julian Anderson, or in previous years, George Benjamin and Judith Weir and some of the other people. I was pretty untutored and looked kind of like an idiot, and I was very sensitive uh, on a number of levels, both both, uh, as a composer and as a person. And I found it kind of odd, not not difficult or disrespectful in any way, but I found it odd that he and many people at Cambridge thought I was gay. Um, hmm. And for Gurr, I think I, he was a bit homophobic and somewhat dismissive of me because I was an overly sensitive Jewish kid from New York who was gay, except I wasn't gay. Right. Um, and, uh, and, and I, I learned a lot that year, but I didn't become a better composer much um, for quite some time. And um, definitely left with the sense that I didn't have it, that I wasn't very good, um, that I wasn't very smart, mm. um, and that I wasn't very musical. Hmm. Um, well, that's positive. Yes, and with, with a complete loss of confidence, I thought, well, I can go back to law school. And so I went back to law school. Right. Yeah, so I went back to law school. And even though I played bassoon for another couple of years, I was the principal player in the Columbia University Orchestra. Maybe not the greatest of university orchestras, but not terrible. We we did Firebird again, sure, Uh, and some other things. Yeah, but um, and I was in, and you know, in all musical levels, I felt like I didn't have it. So I was in this wooden quintet when I was at Cambridge. I was the weakest player in this quintet. I was a pretty good bassoon player, but I was easily the weakest player in this group. And I was um, part of a group that was all undergraduates. A couple were music majors. um, Someone was studying history. Someone was studying, I think, engineering. Mm. And I did not know 
that there, like, and there's a tradition of this at Harvard, all these people major in English or, or history, and then, then they go to Juilliard or NEC or Eastman and become famous virtuosos. So it turns out I was in a group where people were studying all kinds of things, but fully intended to become professional musicians. Interesting. I didn't know this, this tradition, and so I was like, why are these undergraduates studying not musical things playing circles around right. me? Right. And so I got demoralized as a bassoon player, too. So the, the clarinetist in the group was um, an undergraduate named Lindsay Marsh, who's now principal clarinet of Halle Orchestra. Nice. And uh, the horn player is now in Philharmonia, but he was, I think he was studying engineering. But the, 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 the best player in the group, with all due respect to Lindsay, who's a marvelous player, was this oboist. You would, you would cry over his A. Hmm. And um, interesting. And his name was Jonathan. Sometimes I cry over A's for different reasons. For different reasons, yes. <laughs> his name was Jonathan Kelly, and one some of the best oboe playing I ever heard. Hmm. And through the wonders of Facebook and the wonders of the internet, you can learn all kinds of things. I sure. lost touch with these people, so I checked out Jonathan Kelly and learned that he's now the principal oboe player of the Berlin Phil. Jesus Christ! And he was the oboist in our quintet, and and and, and only barely tolerant of my. Not nearly as good bassoon playing. And so it turns out I was in one of the great student wooden quintets. That's amazing. And um, and I, I didn't know. And so I, I formed all these opinions about where I was as a musician. And, I didn't and you're have... comparing yourself against the A level. That's... Yeah. And it would have been helpful to know that. Hey, Hal, these guys, these are not normal people. You can be worse than them. I gotta tell you, I got like five minutes left uh, before I gotta go take some physical therapy for my hip, which I was a, a athlete, a pretty successful scholastic athlete in high school. So what you're okay. talking about with your son? What was your sport? Wrestling. Sports. Excellent. And I got ripped up. Like my right hip is a complete disaster zone. But I think I want to put a pause in this, and I wanna I want to talk to you for like another two hours. Sure. But um, just can't do it right now. But let me, I'm just going to, for this segment, I'm going to put a pause in it. And I'm, we're just going to, like, put it, uh, I'm going to record it exactly where we leave off here. So, part one, uh, we'll see you again for part two.